We're continuing this morning in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I would like to read the Scripture to you, uh, starting with the 12th verse. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be uh, misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He is He raised Christ from the dead, raised Christ, uh, whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have been, <coughs> excuse me, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all die, so all in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. A few tongue twisters in there. But uh, hopefully as we get through it this morning, we'll have a a gleaning of what Paul, the emphasis especially of what Paul wants to put across to us there. Let's pray as we go together. Father, we thank You that we can come together, open Your Word together to share it. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would enter each of us in our minds and thoughts in the sense of, of just setting all the distractions of the week aside and and allowing us to draw uh, in full attention, if you would, Lord, in, uh, to Your Word and that Your Holy Spirit directs us. Each of us coming with different needs, but Your Word being able to meet every one of us where we are. We thank You for the opportunity to worship You and sharing in Your Word. And we thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. In uh, the first part of chapter 15, uh, Paul was reminding the Corinthians what he had presented to them. What, and, and he says, and what you have received from me. Meaning, 
they, they heard it. They must have given it back to him in some format as they discussed it. And he was convinced that they had heard correctly. And, and so he's, you know, he says, I, you received from me. And it was the gospel that I presented to you. And he gives them a, uh, an accounting of the gospel in uh, verses 3 and 4. He says the gospel, uh, I'll just br- abbreviate it here a little bit. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and raised on the third day. And then he gives a list of witnesses starting in verse 5 of all those that had seen him. The apostles and, and Peter, James, Paul himself. Uh, 500 at one time and most of them were still alive. And He was basically saying, we know this is true. We, we have confidence in this. And apparently what was going on in Corinth was a detour or, or a separation from some of this truth. Uh, especially the context of, of a physical bodily, uh, body resurrection. And so they're looking at it and saying, uh, well, first you have to understand, in the, in the Greek culture, a lot of the philosophies believed that uh, flesh in and of itself was evil. And the spirit dwelling within the flesh was, in a sense, trapped in, the, in this evil. And once the man died, he was separate from the evil, and that was whatever would follow, that would be the end of the flesh. And it would be a new road of some kind. And Paul is saying, no, it's a bodily resurrection. Uh, it's a physical bodily resurrection. Adam gave, you know, because Adam sinned, we, we are in a fallen flesh, but because of what Christ has done, our flesh. Uh, we're going to have a new body and, and, it, and it's going to be totally redeemed. It'll be totally pure. It'll be totally holy. And it'll be allowed to be in the presence of God. And, and so he's making sure they understand it is a bodily resurrection. Physical, fleshly resurrection. So, as we look at this, verse 12 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which is what He had taught them, He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you... you, This is what I taught you. You heard it. I know the word received that's used previously to this means that they actually... There was a a reception with it with the context of some basic understanding. He says, how can you possibly now be going this way? How can you be saying this? It's not what I taught you. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And then he gives them some reasoning to say this. If there is no resurrection... By the way, Paul loved to use a pattern of argument, of logic. And it's called if-then. And it's still the predominant way. If this, then this. For those of you who gotten involved in science and equations and and linear equations in math and all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of if-thens. And uh, it's just the idea of logic here. It says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then the result is not even Christ has been raised. Now, see, they were teaching that Christ was physically raised and He did have a spiritual body of some kind. But it was different than anything that we could imagine. 
Well, it was, but it's the same body He's going to give to us. And, and so, you know, they're saying He had a body. That, that, that's a, we'll go with that. But not, we're not going to. He says, if Christ has been raised, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if man can't be raised, then Christ can't be raised. He has a reason for putting this this way. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. I mean, in other words, if there's no resurrected Christ, our preaching has no value. It's fruitless. It's in vain. Our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, any faith you put in Christ in any format is fruitless. Because if Christ has not been raised, nothing else matters. And he says, if Christ hasn't been raised, and this is what we taught, then we're even found to be misrepresenting God. In other words, we're teaching something that God didn't give us to teach. Because we testified that God, uh, that He raised Christ from the, uh, whom He did not raise. In other words, if, if, if we testify that we say He raised Him and God didn't do it, you know, then we're, we're misrepresenting God. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. This statement, what he's saying here, if, if, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. He's alluding back to the very clear picture. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse, that's first, uh, a couple of verses of, of John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. Then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Verse 18, dwelt among us. And and and, and identified the Father to us. Okay. The Word became flesh. And he says, if this didn't happen, listen to his reasoning here, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. In other words, if we're not raised in the flesh, and the flesh is bad, then Christ can't be raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He died physically on the cross. He went to the grave. He was buried and He was resurrected. And the teachings that He had given them that they had understood was the number of people that saw Him, touched touched Him, ate with Him. He says, you're ignoring all of that. And... If man isn't physically raised, then, then Christ who became a man in a man's flesh, He can't be physically raised. In other words, you can't come up with a, a, this separatist idea of, well, this happened to Christ, but it can't happen to us, type of thing. He goes on. If, you're, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you remain in your sins. Why is that? Because it makes it very clear in the Old Testament there must be a physical body sacrifice. There has to be a physical body sacrifice where blood is shed to cover sin. And if Christ hasn't done that, 
made a bodily sacrifice, then your sins are still with you. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. All your friends and relatives and, and that have been involved with the, the, the starting of this church in Corinth and have died and are buried, dust. Basically what he's saying. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying basically, if Christ didn't come in the flesh and didn't go and implied, if he didn't if he didn't come in the flesh, then all this stuff that happened on the cross couldn't have happened. Uh, then he's basically saying, we're a people to be pitied. We're, we've bought into a, a farce. We've bought into a lie. We've bought into uh, a cult. We've done a lot of things. But we have to look at this and say, we're in trouble. Our sins are still with us. Verse 20 is such a transition. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. No matter what your teachings are, no matter how you put together your philosophies about all of this, the bottom line is Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he calls them the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the Jewish people would really grab a hold of this and understand it. Because they're told in Leviticus when their, their crops are ready to harvest, they go out and they harvest the, uh, a, a portion called the first fruits. And they make this into an offering that's taken to the priest and they, they offer it before God as a thank you and a worship and a praise offering uh, for their, their successful crops. And so this first fruits is something that happens before the general harvest happens. What he's saying is, Jesus is the first fruit. He's the first of the resurrection harvest. The rest of you are going to be harvested at the second coming. But you, Jesus, is the first fruits. We will be the full harvest. That's what's implied in this statement. In Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For, <clears throat> for as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. It had to be a man. Adam brought sin into the world. A man had to take sin out of the world. But it had to be a perfect man. It had to be one without blemish, without sin. And so Christ Himself becomes a man. You're familiar with uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through 8, where it says that He emptied Himself and became a man. And it talks about that idea that He became flesh in order to go to the cross for us. And these are the things that, that, that Paul is alluding back to. He's saying He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, because, and He had to do this because by a man, specifically, we'll go to verse 22, as in Adam all die, 
sin came into the world through Adam, he also in Christ shall be made alive. The resurrection has come to us through Christ and the resurrection of the dead. But each, this is important, each in his own order. In other words, it has to happen in a particular sequence. The first fruits, Jesus. Then at Christ's coming, those who belong to Christ. Second coming, resurrection. Then comes the end when He, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. In other words, everything that is of man and that is evil has been destroyed. When that has happened, He delivers the kingdom purged and cleansed to the Father. He must reign until He has put all the enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, the interesting thing is, as we learn from other parts of, the, uh, of, of Paul's writings, that death has already lost its grip on us. But is death still prevalent? Is death still with us? Okay. In Revelation chapter 20, there's a point where it says death is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. That's the end of death completely. There will be no more death. Death is still our enemy. I, I have been to sermons, uh, funerals where I've heard, and death, our friend, has finally taken us home. That is so unbiblical. Death has never been, will never be our friend. Death may be a release from pain and suffering and things like that, and you know, and, and, but that's God's grace at, at work, not death. Death is our enemy. It entered through Adam. It's erased through Christ. And so we don't look, you know, death is something that we, we don't embrace. Are we afraid of it? No. Because it's lost its hold on us. To, to, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But not because I embrace death as a friend. Death is still the enemy. And that's what it says here. The final enemy, the last enemy that will, will leave, will be conquered, is death. And that ruins, uh, like I said, Revelation chapter 20, uh, and it's verse 14, talks about it being thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under His, Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. In other words, He's accepted as the one that, that is to be the authority over them. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. In other words, Jesus is going to continue the position of the Son to the Father in subjection to the Father. 
That's an eternal relationship now. He did that willingly and desiring to save us. I I look at these and I, just the way that Paul's doing this, he's doing it to 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 reach the Greek audience and his Jewish audience as well. But there's a, a, a psalm that I really enjoy as a messianic psalm. And it's the it's Psalm 2. I dropped my Bible and lost my marker for it. Psalm 2 is it's called it's titled the reign of the lord's anointed and this is the 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 condition of the world at the time that this is written the idea is why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain the kings of the of the earth set themselves and the uh, earth set themselves and the rulers take uh counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart. In other words, it says basically man in his desire to be in control shakes his fist at God and says, I'm doing it my way. And the kings get together and they plot and they make uh, treaties with each other and the wars and all the things they do to show who's in control. And so they set themselves apart as the rulers as the, as the, the, and they counsel together. And they, they shake their fist at God and they said, let us burst their bonds apart. In other words, they have no control over us. And cast away their cords from us. Now that's scene one of Psalm 2. Now we're going to scene two. This is a heavenly scene. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King. Notice capital K if you're reading this. I have set My King. It's referring to the Messiah, Christ. On Zion, My holy hill. I've already put My King in charge. This is a picture you know, a thousand years before all of this is written by Paul. But Paul knows these scriptures, and that's why this reference ties to this. The idea is, is that you know he's going everything is going to be under the feet of, of the King of, of, of heaven, Jesus Christ. And he will present it to the Father as an offering when it's all completed and death is finally vanquished. But for us, death is already done, meaning it no longer has a hold on us. Verse 28, just closing it off, it says, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will be subjected to to Him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him, Christ, that God may be all in all. In other words, be the final authority. Within the framework of what he wrote here, 
I want you to really grasp this picture. If Christ were not raised, again he says, all things are, are uh, you know, futile. Our faith is futile. He said there was. He made point to six things. Our preaching is in vain, without purpose. Your faith is in vain. Misrepresenting, we're misrepresenting God. Sins are not covered. Those who have died have have perished, and we of all people are most to be pitied. The reason why I'm, I'm coming to this so repeatedly is that we are in a church that is gospel-centered, preaches the Bible. You chose to be here because of that. But there are churches even within this community who identify themselves as Christian who do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have one pastor who... uh, you know, he, he, he was he was blown away. You know that uh, that I preached the 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 Bible. You know, word for word, he's a topical preacher, and and uh, he he says it's like you're you're teaching it as if every word was true. <laughs> yeah, and and but he's saying it was written by men, so it's fallible. Oh, then what Peter wrote down about the word is God breathed has nothing to do with it. But anyway. His thing was he was was really really clear. He says, "What was resurrected? This is his words. It wasn't a bodily resurrection. What was resurrected was the teachings of Christ. If that is true, then what Paul says: our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. You're misrepresenting God. Sins are not covered, and those who have died have perished. And we of all people are to be most pitied." The gospel is the death, burial, and physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ to cover our sins. This is is basically this is basically the way it works. And and uh, if you probably some of you are familiar. with these verses, but in in uh, Romans chapter three, the twenty third verse, there is no distinction for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. No one has made it through this life without sin, except the holy and perfect Jesus Christ. No one has made it without sin. What are the wages of sin? Death. So we all deserve death. He also says in the third chapter uh, earlier than that, uh, he says, none are righteous. No, not one. Wages of sin are death. And in the book of Romans, further on in chapter 10, he gives this as a picture for us to understand. 
If you confess with your mouth, this is chapter 10, verse 9 of Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. If we confess and we believe, we will be saved. In chapter 5, we're told we're justified by our faith of Romans. We are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. At, to be at peace with God means I have no fear in approaching His throne because the grace of God, the blood of Christ, covers me. Without that grace, without the blood of Christ, I can't approach the throne of God. But because of what Christ has done, I'm invited into the heavenly of heavenlies. I had a, a, a pastor, an elderly pastor at the time that I knew him. Now I think I'm older than he when I knew him. Uh, but uh, he says, and Bob, Jesus didn't go to the cross for us to pass by the heavenly heaven and pick, peek in. He died on the cross so that we might dwell with him there. Not because we're perfect, but because he is perfect. And our sins are forgiven. But it took a physical representation, you know, a physical man to do it. And if we put our faith in it, we are at peace with God. As we Look at this. What, it, what, what Paul is basically saying is that there's one gospel. There's not multiple ideas about that gospel. There's one truth. And the truth is, in that nutshell, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, the Word, to die in our place. So that whoever confesses Him as, saved, as, as the Son of God raised from the dead shall be saved and have eternal life. That's the love of God poured out on us. When we approach communion, that's what we're, we're, we're celebrating is the love of God poured out on us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For it is, in other words, from death. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation means to be at peace. We are at peace with God. We'll sing a song for communion, and this isn't the song we're going to sing. We're going to sing this particular song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. That's going to be our closing song. But as we sing it, think of those words that we're singing. And, and take it as a prayer and, a, and an act of praise and worship. I ask the worship team to come up and, and lead us in our communion song. As they are singing, I ask you to come up and, and pick up the communion and uh, hold it until we've all been served and we'll share together.
Receive from the Lord which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let us share the bread. In the same way, also Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Lord, again we find ourselves thanking You for all that You have done. We can't come to You and make any claim of I deserve or I should have. All we can do is come to You and say thank You for Your grace, Your mercy, Your love. Thank You for Your sacrifice. We share this cup and this bread together recognizing what You have done, but also acknowledging that You are going to be coming back for us to return for us. You are the first fruits of the resurrection. We look forward to the harvest. But as we do, we ask, Lord, that You would cause us to live for You in such a way that You are glorified in our lives and that people are drawn to at least ask, why are You the way You are? That we might give the answer about who You are and what You've done for us. We worship You. We praise You. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand as we close? Let's sing How Deep the Father's Love.